This is Digital Health Today, episode 61. I was uh, not surprised, but struck by the depth of interest in those clinicians who traveled for some from many distances to present the research that they are doing on therapeutic virtual reality because they see results. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible enables mobile solutions to globalize clinical research with anytime, anywhere participant data capture through connected devices. Learn more at medible.com and get a demo today. That's medible.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 61. Thanks for joining me here and being a part of the global digital health community. I really appreciate you sharing your time with me and our guests, and I invite you to join me outside of this podcast as well. If we can't connect in person or by phone, let's at least connect on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can get links to all those profiles for Digital Health Today, as well as for me personally, by visiting our website and signing up to join the Digital Health Today community. It's free to do, and I look forward to welcoming you there. As this episode goes live, we're just one month away from the new General Data Protection Regulation coming into effect. And although this is a European regulation, it affects businesses around the globe, and we are no exception. One byproduct of the GDPR is that we need to confirm that you still want to hear from us. So please take a look at the most recent email you've received from me and click on the purple button. That will confirm your spot in our community and ensure you continue to get the latest updates and interviews from around the world. Speaking of guests from around the world, joining me on this conversation is Denise Silber. She's the founder and president of Basel Strategies and of the Doctors 2.0 and You conference series. Denise is an American expat who's lived abroad for over 20 years, and she has a great understanding of the opportunities and challenges of digital health around the world. Denise is a longtime e-health advocate based in the beautiful city of Paris, France. She was one of the few Americans to receive the Legion of Honor from the French government, and she was awarded that in 2011 for her work in international e-health. In this episode, Denise and I talk about virtual reality, the power of reverse innovation, and the business environment in France, as well as a few tips that she shares about how to get the most out of the events and conferences you attend. You can get the links to everything we discuss on this program on the website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 61. Now let's tune into the conversation with Denise Silber. Denise, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Denise, I've given the listeners a little bit of background. Uh, One of the things that you and I have in common is that we're both American expats. I've been based here in the UK for 15 years. Actually, it was 15 years just a few weeks ago. You've been in Paris for over 20 years. Tell me a little bit about the culture in terms of health and technology and innovation, what you love about that country. Well, this is a really exciting time where we have the energy of of a new and young president Uh, who's been in office uh, for almost a year now, and that has driven further a term that you might have heard called French tech, driven that further forward. For the past few years, France has really decided to jump on the bandwagon of startups and digital technology in a, I've called it an explosive way, having created something you've probably heard of, Station F, which is the world's largest campus for startups. And uh, French schools are known for producing a lot of talent. In fact, you find them in Silicon Valley, in engineering, in math, in programming, things that lead us into the world that we're talking about. 
and France has a tradition of quality in healthcare. And since, like every other country, France is facing the same pressures on the healthcare system of needing to produce more and more for the same budgets or for limited growth in, in budget, they're looking towards e-health to bring lots of solutions. But increasingly, French startups are trying to uh, go international. For them, I guess they, in a way, they can be more successful in doing that than the reverse. Those who start with the United States as a large market have a hard time going down towards smaller markets. Tell us a little bit about that Station F. When did it get started and what's the main mission there? Well, I guess it's going on about a year. Uh, it opened uh, last summer. It's a place, I would say, for it's, it's an immense networking hive of uh, introducing startups to multiple ecosystems. If you go to the website, you will see how many different entities are involved. I bet you nobody even knows the, the full number of organizations that are related to it. Like there are multiple incubators and uh, investment people and manufacturers and, and of course, uh, the startups. It's fairly secretive in the sense that once you, when you get to the door and want to go further, if you're not from a startup, they, they really want to protect the intellectual property of those people. So there are some public areas, but not that many. But I think it was really a statement. Um, this was created by a French entrepreneur who made big time money in um, telecommunications, uh, Xavier Niel or Niel. And um, he absolutely wanted to have the biggest such campus. Now, interestingly enough, in the town of Bordeaux, a second campus is going to open pretty soon that is almost as big as that one, also a startup uh, campus. Yeah, I'm just looking at the website now. It looks like they actually have some options coming up this year for some residency programs as well. But the rates look really low. I mean, 195 euros for uh, a price per desk. And you know, 900 euros a year for a hot desk offer for for five days each month. So it looks like a really great program, and it is, as you said, the largest uh, building of its kind in Europe. And yeah, I'll have to dig into some of the details about some of the various uh, accelerators and incubators that are in there. We're actually updating our list of accelerators for health tech around the world, and I'll make sure that I include any that are listed there. So you've spent a long time in healthcare broadly, and more specifically in digital health more recently. And what are some of the trends that you've observed in digital health in France and globally? And is there some similarities or some differences, some unique things about the French way of doing things that we can learn from? So in terms of the trends in digital health that I see now, I, I see them internationally. I still believe that fundamentally the problem with digital health is its difficulty to integrate into the traditional healthcare system. And one exciting example is Estonia, which I know you've covered on this series, but it's worth reminding listeners that once you do have a national identity card for all residents or citizens, you can then uh, graft all sorts of services onto that platform and healthcare is a service amongst others. So they have a jump start on integrating any future services and countries where you don't have that find it very difficult. So now if we go towards virtual reality, which uh, was the object of a two-day conference in, in California at Cedars-Sinai called virtual medicine, what came out of that is that digital health can only move forward if it fits into the prescription and reimbursement system. 
if um, the physician can't easily prescribe digital health to the patient because of some complex administrative process involved with it, it won't be able to take off. Even though today, if I were an investor, I would be investing in those who are developing virtual reality technology for therapeutic uh, goals. This is an area that physicians are uh, absolutely passionate about because for the first time they're able to actually get something done that's related to their initial work, which is helping patients out. By using virtual reality, a physician can make a patient's life better. By using an electronic health record or a mobile app, you have to be very patient before you see the improvement in the medical condition of the person. A second trend is miniaturization, so that we are on a path, as you're saying, um, where we're working more and more from the inside out and becoming more discreet and seamless. We saw uh, last year the launching of a, of a pill uh, that will be able to monitor and communicate with an app as to whether the person has taken it. We know that nanotechnology is enabling little robots who will be able to go and fight cancer from inside your body. We will increasingly be able to implant chips uh, to monitor your um, sufficiencies and insufficiencies in terms of uh, nutrients that you're, that you're taking. And all of that will become even seamless with, uh, for example, transport and homes. So that versus today, the really big trend is that versus today where healthcare is a silo, you have to go somewhere or you have to do something to take care of your health. It's going to become the reverse that it'll, health will be like breathing. It'll just be with you all the time within your body and around you. And this will have a considerable change on how we live. Yeah, we often only think about our health when we don't have it, when we're sick. So to have it be more of a horizontal that goes all the way across all areas of our life, that's actually one of the things that Amir Kalali mentioned on, on his podcast, which is that health is, is not something that's sort of confined to a hospital or to a doctor's office or to the pharmacy or your home when you're sick. It's actually something that can go across into touching all these different areas from your Amazon Alexa to the watch that you're wearing and the phone that you're carrying and the uh, environment that you're in. Now, one thing I know you're really passionate about also is reverse innovation. So that's a term that we've heard before in business broadly applied to a variety of different areas, but it seems to be coming up more and more frequently in conversations around health. Can you tell me what, what it means and how that gets applied? Reverse innovation refers to the fact that innovation would geographically move in the opposite direction of what we imagine. We tend to think of patents coming out of developed uh, economies and inventions going across towards the emerging economies. This has been shifting in recent years in general. That's why it could be called reverse innovation, as it turned out to be necessary to develop low-cost pragmatic solutions for large markets such as India and China that could not import or that could not use the expensive imported products that were thought with a Western consumer in mind. And now it turns out that these Western consumers are very interested in examining what has been developed in the emerging markets because it might bring in some interesting new qualities and price points. And in healthcare, this topic 
of what we can learn from the emerging countries is the object of a, of a conference that I'm involved in that is called Reverse Innovation for Healthcare. So an example would be um, using uh, SMS, uh, short messaging uh, for telemedicine, or giving what are considered medical tasks that might require many years of preparation by a nurse or a physician to people that are called community health workers who have actually the possibility, because they really um, go deep into the community, of bringing, um, I'll call it knowledgeable empathy to bear on a case so that they are taking the full person into consideration and helping them with everything that might be going wrong in their life and that is contributing to their medical situation or making it impossible for them to get medical care until they've uh, finished resolving their daily life problems. I think one of the things that that is a challenge commercially for those sorts of things is that when people think of of cost constraints and uh, these sorts of environments that can't necessarily don't have the funds or the the resources or the the systems in place to be able to use the sorts of solutions that we're developing, as you termed it, for Western markets. When people look at these these other opportunities, they think, well, there's there's no real value in it. Why spend the time to develop that sort of uh, technology or, as you called it, reverse innovation? develop those sorts of tools on a very low cost point when there's no real commercial model there. But uh, obviously we see that there's a huge need in underserved areas around the world that need uh, more accessible, lower cost resources to be able to manage their care. And, and one of the challenges is, well, people can't b- really build a model, a business model around it. How is your conference going to address that sort of question? And how do we need to look at this problem to see, well, here's what's being done and here's how it can be utilized in other markets? Well. It's sort of like zero-based budgeting, where instead of saying, well, we need this amount of money first and then we build on top of it, they start with, with zero cost and say, how can we get this done? Rather than what you might do in a very structured environment where you say, I have a three ophthalmologists, how am I going to use them? They might have none. And so they're going to say, how are we going to examine people's eyes? And uh, somebody might say, well, there's this very inexpensive app that we can use uh, and we can train a health worker to communicate uh, certain aspects of it to to somebody else at a distance. And how much will it cost? In a country like France, today, as we speak, you can't do that because there's a protocol and a process and perhaps it's even some sort of regulatory thing where you must only a person of a certain category can examine the eyes of, of uh, someone else. So they don't have that luxury, but conversely, they're able to bring in the least cost, lowest cost resource and make it work because there is no alternative. When they can do, um, let's say, a cataract operation for maybe under 50 euros, it's a good operation, gets great results. They just don't put in the bells and whistles that you might in the West. So there actually is a model for it. Who's part of that process then? Because it sounds like you need to have the government health ministers involved and and the regulatory groups and the clinicians, obviously, to be able to, to help determine this. This isn't something that clinicians or innovators can just do on their own, right? Correct. It is a cooperative process with the local population. So uh, in a region where there is nothing, whoever uh, has 
some experience, some legitimacy in the world of health will be involved. You're absolutely right that there'll be the government, there'll be whatever public health officers there are, and then the representatives of the local people. So tell me about the event that you have coming up in Paris. Well, it's on two days, May 31st and June 1st. It's going to be held at the UNESCO headquarters. The UNESCO is partnering with the foundation of the French National Academy of Medicine. And that academy is partnering with Doctors 2.0 and you, which is the brand of, uh, of my company and a community of um, people devoted to healthcare innovation, particularly digitally, uh, around the world. So it's two days of presentations and discussions by a combination of experts, policymakers, and startups, industry people, really very collaborative uh, approach. Maybe I didn't say physicians, physicians for sure, health workers around this issue of healthcare cost is exploding. There are some great alternatives. Let's have a close look at 12 non-Western uh, examples. Let's also hear from French startups. So uh, Doctors 2.0 has been involved in running a challenge. Uh, so we've got this group of um, soon to be named winners of the challenge who will be pitching and having a space to, uh, to do demos. It's gonna be a very interactive conference with, I think I counted yesterday, uh, 22, 23 countries already signed up. We're covering the five continents. And very important, let me not forget, it is free. This is being <laughs> subsidized by sponsors and by the, the Academy uh, itself, Academy of Physicians. So um, they can go on the website, whose link I imagine you're going to put out, and, and sign up uh, as soon as they can. Absolutely, yes. I will include a link on the website. People can get to it via doctors20.com, doctors, the number two, the number zero.com. And there's a link there to take you to this conference. That is important that it is free because there is obviously a limitation on how much money we can all spend going to these various conferences. It's glad to, uh, I'm glad to hear that it's being subsidized and that's a wonderful uh, opportunity for people to engage. I look to see some of the speakers that you have on here and it uh, looks like it's really going to be a great conference. We'll dive back into our conversation in just a minute, but first I want to tell you about one of our outstanding sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Medible, the app and analytics company for healthcare. Since its launch in late 2016, Medible has seen rapid adoption of its platform with a customer base that cares for over 15 million patients and conducts over 6,000 clinical trials. Its platform is becoming the de facto standard for healthcare research on mobile. Let's say you're studying Parkinson's disease. Medible's platform allows researchers to set up a clinical trial, access third-party tools like Apple's Research Kit, and integrate different data sets. The company developed something it calls the Human Digitome. It's an intelligence system that systematically tags digital signatures of health and disease. The Digitome is an increasingly prized method, and it's drawing acclaim from leading research hospitals and biopharma companies precisely because it gives medical research centers a way to generate anytime, anywhere data, and analyze massive data sets. But Medible recognizes that there are some fundamental challenges in the clinical trial industry. What are two of the biggest issues slowing down clinical trials? low participation rates, and weak data sharing tools among research groups. Medible's come up with a way to transform clinical trials. It's a blockchain solution they call Insight. Insight enables auditable, transparent, and self-directed data sharing. 
Researchers can use the Medible platform to contribute data in exchange for funding and other research resources. And clinical trial participants can donate data to specific research efforts. With Insight, everyone benefits. Sound interesting? Then check out Medible. Go to medible.com to find out how you can get the benefits of Insight in your organization. Now let's jump back to the conversation. Speaking of conferences, I know that you were a panel moderator at another great event recently. I saw you sitting near the stage at the virtual medicine conference that Brennan Spiegel organized at Cedar sinai at the end of March. What was your big takeaway from the virtual medicine conference? It looked fantastic. What, what was your big takeaway from having been there? Yes, and uh, let me say that if you saw me, it's because uh, Brennan Spiegel and his team had set up a 360 live stream so that you could move around yeah, the, the room. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and, and it was great because actually I had a better seat than you. <laughs> and I was in the UK. Undoubtedly. And I was, Undoubtedly. I was at the camera uh, looking at the, the speaker, and then obviously I could turn around and get a view that only the speaker had. So the speaker and the, those of us on the live stream 360 were the only ones that were able to, right. to look around. I saw Brennan sitting there in the front row. You were there in person for two days. What, what did you take away from that? Well, two things. One that I've already said, which is the uh, impact. I was uh, not surprised, but struck by the depth of interest in those clinicians who traveled, for some from many distances, to present the research that they are doing on therapeutic virtual reality because they see results. We saw various videos uh, showing people of all ages, and we had quite senior patients who were the most surprised. The younger patients were not surprised by the tool, but by the result, whereas the older patient was surprised by both the tool and the result of um, the absence of pain or reduction in depression, uh, any variety of uh, illnesses that are related to the central nervous system. Although there was also the example, and, and that is as well, hypertension, also related to a stress aspect, but not just. However, what I am going to um, mention as my biggest takeaway take is the word collaboration and partnership. In every aspect, virtual medicine uh, is an example. Virtual reality medicine is an example of that. Um, first of all, Cedar sinai is in West Hollywood, and none of what we did would be possible if there hadn't been for nearly 30 years now, a technological collaboration around the field of virtual reality. No one company can say, I invented this. Just there's so many different types of headsets and uh, approaches to producing virtual reality, and it's definitely not stabilized. It will continue to advance. There's the whole, so that's the hardware. There's the whole notion of the content, and uh, Ready Player One was opening the same at the same time as this conference was held uh, exactly that week and many people made reference to the fact that without the visualizations that we get from Hollywood without those creative teams that practice on uh, fictional uh, areas they would not have the content that they need to treat the patients because the patients see different forms of scenarios that's how we are approaching this today. Who knows, in the future, maybe you'll just be able to imagine something and it appears in front of you, but now you have to be fed with content that appears in it. And then um, virtual reality alone isn't going to be enough. We heard a lot about combination packages. For example, 
the work that's done um, in an African-American church on hypertension. It's virtual reality to help people get into the right mindset, to lower stress, to interact on certain ideas, to convince themselves that they really want to go forward on nutrition, on exercise. But there was also a digital watch and mobile apps. So it was really a package, a therapeutic package. We saw this as well in the area of pain, that there's um, people working from uh, a pharma company, uh, Bayer, working with Samsung, working with somebody else. So collaboration is the master word from the virtual reality conference, in my opinion. You know, I have to say that that word, collaboration or partnership, is coming up more and more frequently in all the podcasts that I do and, and at the meetings that I attend. So that's really interesting that that was one of your key takeaways. You talked about how there were a lot of examples of how people are using virtual reality in practice. What are some of the other examples that sort of spring to mind? Or maybe you can tell me a little bit about the panel that you moderated uh, about how people are actually using this in practice today. Right. So uh, I had the the great joy of moderating a panel with three patients. One was a woman who had been able to deliver a baby with no, her own baby with no anesthesia. Uh, She'd had a first child who was uh, born under the effect of the anesthetic, it was determined, and so who spent uh, a day and a half in a sort of a groggy state and she didn't want that to happen again and so she and her husband agreed when the physician recommended or prescribed uh, that the birth process be accompanied by her uh, being exposed to a virtual reality scenario that she chose and it it went swimmingly. I don't know if she was looking at something aquatic but it, it went very very well for her and she said she would recommend it to to anyone. All of the patients, I will mention the two others, but all said that time goes by in a GIF, that um, for what might appear to be a few minutes could be an hour or two uh, in reality. And you know, I have to say, I've actually never tried VR for more than just a few minutes. So I've only ever tried it sort of in a demo sort of situation where I've been you know, working with someone or standing with, next to someone's booth at an exhibition and, and trying something. So that would be interesting to have a longer term exposure to it to see exactly how time does fly when you're in that environment for longer. Which uh, I fully agree with you, it's also my case. I've been in there uh, in that glass uh, elevator that goes up and down uh, at jet speed, but I've never done that for for many minutes. And this leads me to another thought that I had coming out of this uh, conference, which is that we're really going to need to collaborate, again, collaboration and partnership with with patients who've experienced this, because there's truly a before and an after. It's like, you know, how do you describe the color red to somebody who's never seen it, any color? Um, if if someone has experienced virtual reality uh, recently, then they can very easily remember how they felt before, how they felt during, and how they feel afterwards, and guide the clinicians with respect to the new protocols that they're going to come up with to treat uh, some of these uh, ailments that we've been discussing, which um, would bring me back to the other two cases. So there's a woman who has lupus and who regularly, um, I don't know if I want to call it self-medicates, but uses the headset. And uh, she also, she is interested in, uh, in scenarios with dolphins to take away the pain, to put her in a better state. And uh, she does this at home. 
And then the third uh, person is, uh, is a young man who suffers from Crohn's disease and who, was, who is hospitalized, who used to be hospitalized quite often. And Dr. Spiegel um, or team was able to give him a headset and practically instantaneously this severe pain disappeared. And we can see uh, in, in the photos that were shown to us since others people that were movies, you can see that the, I would say the patients are glowing. They are enveloped in this and in this good place, thanks to the virtual reality therapy. So now that brings back the, the two thoughts of the efficacy of it and the fact that in order to get this done, you really need multiple parties involved. Yeah, it's really transformative. It's really amazing when you do put the headset on and you have that 360 degree experience. It really does transport you. It's, uh, it's a very fascinating trick that you can play on your mind just by putting on that headset. Denise, I want to ask you about conferences in general. You have a lot of experience around conferences and there's, there's so many things being organized around the world that we could almost literally go to conferences every day. The, the events page on the Digital Health Today website is full of different things and it can be a real problem when we're trying to be productive and do good work but still get to the industry events that will make us more effective in our jobs and allow us to connect with people and learn the things uh, that we need to learn in order to be effective. What do you recommend to people who are trying to prioritize where they go and which conferences they attend? Do you have any tricks or or tips on how people can do that? Well, something I've um, been experimenting with is breaking out of my comfort zone. And I can only recommend it to people. I think that because we live in we live in a world uh, where there is so much supply of many things that we can do, people try to um, assume a dominating role. They say, "Well, let me organize everything, be as efficient as possible. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and not let myself wander." And I feel that we should, whether it's within a conference, uh, strike up a conversation with somebody you don't know and don't know why you would speak with them. Let serendipity work as well as studiously going through the program, identifying the people you want to see, going to LinkedIn and trying to establish contact or using the app from the event uh, to reach out to participants. All of that is good. It would be crazy to say that uh, you shouldn't do it. But I also say leave a role also to chance and serendipity within the conference itself. And then as far as the conferences you go to, I'd say shake it up a little. Don't systematically sign up to go back to the same place you are every year. And then typically once you get there, you say hello to the same people. I say try some new ones, even if there is a bit of fallout that, well, it's one you went to once and you wouldn't go again. That's okay. You have learned, you've looked at at something from a new angle during that time. And I would say uh, geography is also interesting because people tend to go near where they work or live. So I'd say shake up the geography. Go to some local places, go to something in another part of the country you live in, a distant part, and go abroad, whatever your starting point. Try, uh, try a conference um, in another country because it will shed greater light on your own situation. You'll see more freedom because when you discover that in respect to a particular question, that other people are doing something quite differently, it will free you up to say, gee, maybe I don't have to just do things the way I do. Yeah, I think those are great points. And that's something that we need to really think about as we look at health being so expansive and inclusive in so many different areas of our lives that really 
being exposed to these different types of conferences where different ideas are being shared, uh, different solutions, different problems being tackled, and a different audience in the room. All right, Denise, well, listen, I'd like to jump into the lightning round with you. There's six questions I'd like to ask every guest. First of all, what's a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? To thine own self be true. There is nothing more motivating than to get up in the morning and attack some project that reflects your authentic self. I am approached by people to, to mentor them, and um, I see this huge smile on their face when I help them realize that the reason why they're not progressing in what they're doing is that they're not doing what they love. And I dare say, Dan, you have identified what you love. This podcast series, which is a success, that's coming from the fact that it is deeply aligned with what you enjoy doing. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So actually, that answer almost sounds like an answer you could give to this second question, which is what's a piece of advice that you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? It does. But there, I would say that those who are working in healthcare, I would hope that they all have one common authentic self goal, which is to make life better for patients. If, if you are in it for any other reason, such as family pressure to follow the lead of the grandparents and become a doctor or um, for other reasons that are not related to I'm in there because I want to make life better for patients, then it's, it's just not worth continuing. What book do you recommend to our listeners? Well, there's so much information out there about blockchain, but Blockchain by Richie Etwaru is, is a fantastic book because it's very agreeable to read and it situates blockchain in the whole question of the evolution of trust in our society. It's just a very enjoyable, simple read. I think if you have only one thing to read about blockchain, I would do that one. Excellent. What tech do you recommend to our listeners? Well, this is not exactly tech, but it's a part of a tech which is that I have an Apple Watch. And on the Apple Watch, as a standard, you have a little breathing app. And wherever you are at any time during the day, you can press on that app and you have one minute of guided breathing uh, that is soundless. You will feel it through the vibration of the watch. And if you do that regularly, you will see a significant improvement in the expansion uh, of your thorax, uh, of, uh, in, in an improvement in your breathing. And of course, breathing uh, is uh, a de-stressor. So it's, it's really a great thing to try. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, how would you invest it? Unsurprisingly, after this uh, interview, I would invest it in virtual reality therapeutics. Excellent. And last thing is we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time here on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? Well, I'd love to divide this between two French rare disease charities that are not so well known, one in the area of sarcomas and one in the area of amylosis. These are both rare uh, conditions. They're both doing amazing things um, with, with digital. The sarcoma one is uh, collecting money for uh, starter proof of concepts, uh, so POCs, POCs, for clinical trials. I think that that's an, a genius idea that before a clinical trial goes out and spends millions to start with a small amount and show that this can actually be done. And then uh, for amylosis, they're developing a platform to bring together around this disease 
all of the different stakeholders in a collaboration, in a partnership to improve uh, research and conditions for people living with this disease, amylosis. So professionals and patients working together, which is what I absolutely love. Excellent. Well, we'll include links to both those charities on the show notes for this episode. Thanks very much for nominating them. And anyone who's led to do so can make a donation as well using those links. Denise, we've got a few ways to get a hold of you. We can find you on uh, Twitter at Health2OParis. Health2OParis. The best ways to get me, if um, we're not connected on LinkedIn, you can try that. My website, which is doctors2.com, where you have news about the different conferences coming up and interesting hopefully interesting blog articles. And then uh, my personal Twitter account is Health20Paris. The Doctors2O account is Doctors20. Excellent. Yes, and on that Doctors20.com site is where people people can find out information about that reverse innovation conference happening on May 31st and June 1st in Paris, free of charge, a subsidized conference that uh, is taking place there and uh, encourage people to get out there and attend. Anything else you'd like to say to the listeners before I let you go? No, just uh, please, if you're interested in coming to that conference and you know you're going to come to Paris, reach out to me and we will meet. There you have it. That was Denise Silber, founder and president of Doctors 2.0 and you. Grab all the links to the companies we discussed in the show notes for this episode at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 61. And if you can be in Paris on May 31st and June 1st, be sure to check out the reverse innovation conference that's happening there. Also, be sure to check out our partner Medible and their blockchain solution called Insight. See how Medible is transforming clinical trials. You can find their link on the show notes or just go directly to medible.com. Be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this podcast. Let's link up on Twitter. You can find me at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealthToday. That's all for me for now. I'll speak with you soon in episode 62. And until next time, keep on innovating.